continuing in Revelation 14, please, and we're looking particularly at the um, message of the third angel, but it's quite remarkable because um, what we're looking at really here is a picture, and a, a terribly serious picture of the wrath of God. The wrath of God. And that's such a stark contrast, isn't it, to the mercy of God. What we've been considering this morning, what a contrast. And as you read these sections of Scripture and realize what lies ahead for a sinful world and for an individual sinner as well, you're very, very grateful that mercy's been shown you. And it is. Mercy's been shown. It's a wonderful thing to be forgiven. Wonderful thing to know there's no condemnation. Wonderful thing to know that you'll know you'll never come under the wrath of God, for it's a terrible, terrible thing, the wrath of God. And what we're doing as we're coming through this book, we're seeing at this stage the unfolding drama of the judgments of God upon sin, a sinful society, a sinful world. And in the third angel in particular, it's quite alarming because it's the judgment of God on an individual sinner. See, it's very personal, this whole thing. It's not general. It gets right down to the individual. Whether or not you and I are right with God, we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb freed from all condemnation, never to see the judgment of God again. Never. Well, here we go, and we'll read from verses 6 to 11 again, with little, con with little uh, comment, but just the solemnity of the word of God. As you've got the picture of the three angels, and they're all speaking of judgment and condemnation and the wrath of God. I saw another angel, verse 6, fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach. Thank God for that. A message of mercy, isn't it, of an everlasting salvation. And it's to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. It's for the whosoever. They talk about discrimination. There's no discrimination in the gospel of God. Sinners, Jesus will receive. Sound this word of grace to all. That's what that shows you there. An everlasting gospel to all that dwell on the earth, every nation, kindred, tongue and people. Saying with a loud voice, here it is, fear God. Give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. There is the warning. Worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. See what he's doing? He's confronting them. Mankind's confronted with their sin. There's the gospel of being offered on this side, and the need for it is shown quite clearly because... Sadly, man without God in their sin refused to fear him, refused to glorify him, and refused to recognize and worship him that made the earth, the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the fountains of the waters. They're rejecting the creator God, and they know nothing of the redeemer God. And then another angel comes, and we've looked at this. He says, Babylon is fallen. Babylon, that represents Babel, it goes back to, you remember, when all the peoples of the earth united themselves together for one sole reason. They said, we will make us a name. We will build us a city. We'll have a society that's arranged around ourselves. We will build us a tower and have a system of worship that's all about lifting ourselves up instead of bowing down to God, the creator and their redeemer. Now he says, the second angel, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, that organization of mankind wrapped in an evil society where the politics of the world and the finances of the world and every social scheme of the world are bound together in one ugly morass of sin and corruption and defiance of God 
Uh, they hate God. They hate his Christ. They hate his people. They're indeed, they says, they're drunken with the blood of the prophets. You can see the shadows of it in the day in which we live. It'll climax finally, but it's already here in its, in its meaning and activity. Many antichrists are already in the world, and evil is already abounding on every hand, and you can sense the thing building up and up and up, and it says here, fallen. We went through the later chapters, 18, 19, 17, and 18, as to the fullness of the, of the final judgment of a evil society that lives in the absolute rejection of God. She's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then the third angel, saying with a loud voice, here's the warning now, it's not on a city, it's not on a society. This is the reality of an individual who's not right with God, who has chosen the wrong way and done it knowingly and deliberately in rejection of the Savior, of the Lamb that God has provided. Instead, they choose the evil beast, which is a one whom the dragon, Satan, has provided. And he says with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast, his image, receive his mark and his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. And in the presence of the Lamb, this is terrible reading, the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. They have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, whosoever receives the mark of his name. And then there's a ray of light. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Remarkable, isn't it? This is the word of the Lord. You wouldn't dare say it or suggest it else. It's the antithesis of the mercy of God. It's the wrath of God. It's the judgment of God. And we're getting these pictures put through in this book of the Revelation, which is like a picture book as you turn each page so you see them. And then we've got pictures of warning and we've got pictures of, of judgment. And we've got pictures illustrating the anger and the wrath of God. And, you know, they're frightening pictures. They really are. Uh, scripture says in Hebrews chapter 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It speaks of, the, of God himself being glorious in his holiness, but he's terrible in his judgments. Terrible. And the whole book from here on especially, it's been similar on, uh, right up to now, but from here on especially... It's like you're opening the picture books and you're seeing these pictures put before you, but it's, it's like taking your, the book and opening it like that. And then on one side, you know, you see, you see a picture of absolute blessing, but on the other page you see a picture of absolute cursing. On this side you see such light, and on that side you see such darkness. On this side you see mercy, on that side you see judgment. On this side you see grace, on this side, no, you see wrath. Because that's the alternative. It is either one or the other. It's blessing, it's cursing, it's salvation, or it's damnation. Now, that's how the book is set out from here on, one after the other. And we will just later on bring them together in their beauty, really. Because, for instance, even in this chapter, it starts off with that, with that lovely picture of blessing, 144,000, redeemed of the Lord, standing on Mount Zion, following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, singing a new song, listening to the voice of the thunder of heaven, the harpists as they harp with their harps. And the music's beautiful, and they're singing, and they're following the Lamb whithersoever he goes. What a lovely bright picture. 
And then suddenly these three angels just fly across the, the picture book, as it were, up against that black cloud of darkness. And they're warning judgment. And they're saying, Babylon, fallen. And now they're saying, woe to him who has chosen the wrong way. It goes on and on. Next chapter, you'll get the sea of glass and the saints standing on the sea of glass, singing the song of the redeemed. And then you'll suddenly see the picture of seven vials, seven bowls of wrath, which fill up the wrath of God being poured down upon the sinful, rebellious mankind. So you see one page, then the other page. You get the fall of Babylon. You get the misery of the woman Babylon. Then you get the picture of the marriage supper of that land. That glorious day when we shall see him face to face. And we'll be actually united with him and to him. And we will never leave him in the glories and splendors of heaven. And then you go on and you get the lovely picture of the new heaven and the new earth wherein there dwells righteousness. Sin doesn't exist anymore. There's no more sin. There's no more sorrow. There's no more crying and there's no more pain. But in stark contrast, suddenly you get a picture of the great white throne and the judgment of God and the cry of the condemned. And Satan, the source of all sin, finally judged. And the beast and the false prophet. And everyone whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life. Judgment of God, for they never sought his mercy. So it goes on. One side of the page, pure joy and glory. The other side of the page, absolute despair. One mercy, the other wrath. Total destruction and eternal damnation. I mean, this is terrible. You ask your question, don't you? Which side of the page is the, the picture of your own future? Thank God if you've trusted Christ. You've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Oh, what a future we've got. What a hope. And then you look in a sense of fear and terror, and you look at the other side of the page, and you, you just fear, and you cry out to God that the mercy will come through the preaching of the gospel. That's why the first angel, he had that gospel ready if only people would realize their need. See, we've got to keep this in mind in the relation to the whole Christian gospel. We sort of lost the, the, the meaning of it a bit these days. We keep talking about the positive, the positive, the positive. Everything's beautiful, everything's wonderful. God is a God of love. He doesn't condemn. He just receives and he accepts and he puts up with anything and everything. And he was there, made, he was there for us. You know, um, he's almost, well, you really should be very grateful that we even turned up kind of approach. We're so important. It's all about the self these days. And we forget the side, there is the love of God, there's the judgment of God. That's right through the scriptures and the teaching of the Lord Jesus, but we only take half of what Jesus says. You think of a verse like John 3.35 and what it says there, 36, he that believes on the Son hath everlasting life. You say, wow, that's wonderful, tell them all about that. Believe on the Son, you'll have everlasting life. Well, you only told them half the story, you see. The other side of it was, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. Is that all? But the wrath of God abides on him. You see that? The wrath of God abides. That's a terrible thing. That's your alternative. There's no nothing in between. John 3.16, tell everybody, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a positive message of love. Hold it. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish. Now that's the other side of it. You see? And the two must be brought together if a true message of God and a right representation of God and the gospel will ever get across to a sinful world. <clears throat> They'll never cry for mercy until they know their state as sinners. They will never cry for mercy until they know that there is a coming day of wrath. It's a fearful thing. 
to fall into the hands of the living God. Now let's just think a moment. What are we, just to take a few more layers off the question or off the issue. When we're talking about the wrath of God, what, what are we really thinking of here? And as a, if you like, a definition, which we'll unpack later, God's wrath is God's unchanging attitude to sin. I want to say that again. It's his unchanging attitude to sin. Don't get muddled up with wrath just being like you and I getting angry and losing our top, you know? And what happens? We get over it, don't we? That's not the case, no. What is it? We, just, we weren't always like that. We just got flared up over an issue and we went past normal self-control into wrath. <clears throat> and then we cooled down. You know, it was a cyclical sort of thing and probably a fairly selfish sort of thing. This isn't that. This is God's constant attitude to sin. He doesn't let it burst forth because he's a God of mercy and he will show mercy upon whom he will show mercy. He will have compassion on those upon whom he will have compassion and he can do it because the Lord Jesus Christ has died and opened the gates of love and mercy. But one day the truth is as presented here in Revelation, that door of mercy will totally shut. This is God's unchanging attitude to sin. They say, what does it mean to have an attitude? What is my attitude? How do you know somebody's attitude? You actually know it from the way in which they behave. How they behave tells you their attitude, right? And so you see it. It's not necessarily what they say here. You're getting right down to the essence of the meaning of the thing. And my attitude to something is actually, you can watch me, and it wouldn't matter what I said, just see how I behave about it. Let's do something simple in order to get the picture clear. I was actually thinking, and if you don't mind, John, you're going to be the example today. Let's take, you know, what's, what's, uh, what's John's attitude of fishing? You know? Does anybody know John's attitude of fishing? He said, well, he never told me. Well, you watch him. I'll tell you something. He's got a boat. And you listen to his conversations around someone. He's always talking about his boat. And he wants a better boat. And you know what? He goes fishing. And he goes fishing whenever he can go fishing. And he loves to talk about fishing. So I don't care what he says. I just watch his behavior. And I think, this guy's attitude to fishing is he's really... Well, hooked on it, <laughs> okay? <laughs> now, so different. Well, you ask me, my, you don't know my attitude to fishing. Well, you go and ask my wife when I went fishing last. You go and ask my wife if I bought her a boat yet. And I tell you, the last time I went fishing was about 50, sorry, John, 50-something years ago. So you see what I mean? You know from my behavior, my attitude to fishing. No, I don't hate it. It's just that I'm not interested in it. Particularly, it doesn't stir me up. Now, let's go back to what's serious. What is God's attitude to sin? What is God's wrath? It's his unchanging attitude to sin. And it's seen in three ways, really, to think about it. You think of anger, you think of hate, and you think of judgment. Because judgment is God acting on the attitude which he has. Anger, hate, judgment are all in those words. See, Psalm 7 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. See that? Hate. It says of the Lord Jesus that he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. Not that he just didn't like it or turned from it. He hated wickedness. It's repeated again in Hebrews, isn't it? Chapter 1, he hated iniquity. Anger with the wicked every day. Hate of wickedness. And then there's finally, there's that awful sense of judgment. And you know, the truth is that 
God is going to one day judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has appointed. We forget when Paul preached on Mars Hill, he preached about the creator God, he preached about times of ignorance that God winked at, but he ended with the fact that there was a coming, a day of judgment. That, if anything, is the message which the church has unfortunately failed to tell a sinful world. In an eagerness to be liked, in an eagerness to be heard, in an eagerness to be accepted, in an eagerness to be seen as non-discriminatory, we tell them that God loves everybody, but the truth is he's going to judge the wicked and the Christ rejecter. And there's only one answer, to cry out to God for mercy. So you've got anger, you've got hate, you've got judgment, and you've got the thing brought together in Romans chapter 2, which is the great epistle of the gospel, where it says, it speaks of the wrath and righteous judgment of God. They come together there. Now, you see, you've got to, let me just dwell on that word again as we've been over it. There's anger, there's hate, there's judgment. And in other words, in the word wrath, there's a depth of passion. You see, you're going right to the very heart and the holiness of God. The very nature and being of God is outraged by sin. God is an indignant God. You'll find that word mentioned of God's indignation through the scriptures. He has made man his creature and he's given him everything. Everything. The only thing of the Garden of Eden. Everything provided for man. Couldn't have been more wonderful. Mankind couldn't have been more fulfilled. Not only did they have the creation and its beauty and its harmony, they had the fellowship of one another, they had the very presence of God daily and they could speak to him freely, and all that they could require for their satisfaction they could have, and what did they do? They said, we'll listen to Satan, we'll do it our way. They turned their back and faced it in the wrong direction, and in his indignation, God drove them out. Same sin today, you know. Same sin today. They said, we won't have him telling us what to do. We will be our own gods and reign for ourselves. We'd rather listen to the voice of Satan, the deceiver, than listen to the voice of God, the creator. And the alternative was the blessings of Eden or the barriers, gates, the doors are shut and they're driven out into the desolation of a world that was under the curse of God and under the judgment of God. And even today, it's under the judgment of God. And one day that judgment will break forth in the fury of wrath and God will see to it that sin does not exist anymore. Angel 1 warned us about it. Coming judgment. Angel 2 gave us a picture of the judgment of God on that sinful society of Babylon. And now in Angel 3, we're having this picture of God in judgment on the individual. And this is pretty confronting and it's very personal. I tell you, we all must meet God one day. Every soul will meet God one day. Everyone will finally stand before God in the day of judgment, you know. Every single person, the living and the dead, the small and the great, even the sea will give up their dead, the scripture says. Nobody will escape. Facing God, he shall have the last word on the whole curtain of time. God will have the last word. He is the Alpha and Omega presented in Revelation chapter 1. The beginning and the end. He was there in the beginning and he made the beginning. He'll be there at the end and he'll bring it to a conclusion and he'll have the final say. Men may shake their fist in the face of God and the devil may stand back and party on and all the hosts of hell rejoice, but God will have the last say. 
That's the teaching of Scripture. That's the hope of the believer. The coming a day when the God of peace will bruise Satan under our feet. That's what it says in Romans chapter 16. Meanwhile, we are going on with the patience of the saints and keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. So in verses 9 to 11, we're looking at God judging the individual. Those who have deliberately chosen to serve sin and Satan. I want you to notice that. It's a deliberate choice. They have deliberately rejected the gospel and they have refused the lamb that God provided and chosen instead the beast, the representative of the dragon. In other words, the devil's man ruling on the affairs of the kingdoms of men. That's what they wanted. That's what they chose. That's what they took. There are eternal consequences in rejecting God and in rejecting Christ as Savior. Eternal consequences. Romans, and this uh, Revelation 9 to 11 It warns us. It's the warning the angel's giving to all mankind through all generations, finally in the day to come, of a disastrous way, of a dreadful end, in a dreadful place. Get that? A disastrous way of living. Disastrous choice made, which has a dreadful end in a dreadful place. Let's read it in verse 9. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast, bearing in mind that this is the devil's Agent in tremendous power, for the beast has given him all his strength, the great deceiver, the hater of the Christian, the persecutor of the saints of God, the very source of evil, the principalities and powers of evil in heavenly places. They worship that. This is what they want. They bow down. They give their honor to it. Imagine that. They pledge allegiance to it. They actually hold evil in high esteem. Can you not see the shadows, coming events, casting their shadows before in the world in which we live? Who is wined and dined and fated but the filthiest and perversions? That's what's wined and dined. They not only take delight in that, but they have fellow delight in those that do it. What are the standards of the press? What is it screaming across the newspapers? What is it being lauded in all the places of learning? Defiance of God. The exaltation of evil. They'll bow down to that. They will receive his mark. And that's the, that's the brand of ownership, like the branding of the cattle. The farmer says, that cow's mine. It's got my brand on it. God says of the Christian, that soul is mine. I've sealed him with my Holy Spirit of promise until the coming day of redemption. That's the notion. They've given allegiance and deliberately allowed ownership to be taken of themselves by the beast. They receive it. You get the idea? It's not that they were held down and banged with it. No, they received it. They, they were happy to be children of wrath and to be known that their father was the devil. That's what's happening. It's a deliberate choice. And I, I want to say in passing, in stark contrast to maybe a few years back, whatever many it was, you know, we would send missionaries out into countries that were ignorant They hadn't heard the gospel and you were pitiful for them, weren't you? You felt for them and you thought we must tell them what they don't know. We're living in a society now, in Western society, amongst people who do know, who have known the the fact of God, the existence of God, the presence of a Bible, the meaning of God, who have largely grown up so often with a background of reverence for God and yet with a deliberation they make their choices. We're going to cast off. We're going to cast his bonds asunder. That's what we're going to do. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh, it says in Psalm 2, because he set his king on his holy hill of Zion, and he'll have the last say. He will have the last say. 
Now, I want us to understand the society in which we're living because we need to. We are not living so much amongst people who are grossly, blatantly sinning in the most pervert of ways, not knowing any difference. Now, it's too true that the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not. That's perfectly true, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine in. But have an understanding of the society in which we live. We have got rulers and those in places of authority that know what they're doing. You, uh, pardon me mentioning some names, but you take Senator Penny Wong. Let's not go into the perversions of it all. That lady was brought up in a Christian background and a very conservative Christian background. Let's take what's happened in New South Wales uh, with the latest premier, the, the lady that's the premier, when she was first into office this time, what did she do? Oh, she passed laws about killing babies right up until the time of birth. And they, you know, they partied half the night, almost in an orgy of celebration that they got this through, that women could now, in the name of motherhood, kill their child. You say, well, the poor lady, she mustn't know what she's doing. That lady was brought up in an Orthodox church, Eastern Orthodox church background. She knows the Bible. She knows God. And she's what? She's saying, no, there's a deliberation here. Pardon me, if Daniel Andrews is, is brought up in a Catholic background, don't tell me he doesn't know a Bible. Doesn't know, don't tell me he doesn't know about creation, creator God. Don't tell me he doesn't know about sin. He doesn't know about judgment. Yes. And we need to have a right assessment of the society in which we're living. It's a society that's going headlong to destruction. And in the midst of it, we hold up the truth of the everlasting gospel. Unadulterated, not watered down. Tis mercy all immense and free. It's available for the sinner who will come and then seek out the mercy of God. Otherwise, it's judgment. Those are the lessons coming from the book of Revelation. Blessing, cursing, salvation, damnation. And perhaps if we're not living in days of ignorance, we're living in days of deliberate rejection because the time will come when things will be so bad that God will finally move in judgment and he'll come down in the fury of his wrath and destroy the whole thing and have the last word and the angels will say and all creation will say, True and righteous are thy judgments, O Lord. Now, they won't be saying, oh, surely the Lord could have waited a bit longer. No, they'll say, true and righteous are your judgments, O God. It had to be. It absolutely had to be. And you get to the dreadful consequences there. In verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And it is poured out without mixture. In other words, it's poured out undiluted. There's not a shred of mercy mixed with the wrath and righteous judgment of God. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's terrible, isn't it? You see, you can sense there's indignation here. There's a cup of his indignation. That's what it's called. An indignant God whose, whose rights have been overthrown, whose mercy has been rejected, whose authority has been overthrown, whose sheer goodness has been absolutely refused by the very creature which he made, who is so small compared to him, that in the indignation of the fact that his goodness has been rejected and his gospel has been not heeded, he turns in his indignation and he pours out the wrath the judgment, and it's absolutely undiluted. You know, God says it's over. That's what he says. 
This is it, he says, it's over. And I tell you, when God says it's over, it, it, it is over. And there's coming a day, you know, when it's all over. It's all over. And fellow Christian, it's going to be a wonderful day for those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and a terrible day for those who have rejected Christ as their Saviour. Terrible day. And don't get any ideas about the lack of finality in the judgment of God. You've already seen it when we went through Revelation 18 and the overthrow of Babylon. And it says that um, when she was thrown down with great violence, it says she shall be found no more at all. Get that? No more at all. It's final. It's finished. The voice of the harpers, the musician, and the pipers, and the trumpeters heard no more at all. The craftsmen, the craft, whatever it might be, the sound of the millstone heard no more at all. The light of the candle shining no more at all. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride heard no more at all. It's over. It's coming a day. It's over. Absolutely over. Without mixture into the cup of his wrath of in the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented by fire and brimstone in the presence of his... This is incredible, tormented. And the, the torment is external and it's internal. See, all you can do, you can just write a, a book and you can give examples or you can paint word pictures and give imagery. And the imagery here is ghastly. It's smoke. It's torment fire, brimstone, and the torment is external from without, and then there's the torment that's internal and the realisation of the blessing that could have been, like the rich man in hell, oh, please don't let my brothers come, he said. I mean, the man realises. He realises that within his reach, as it were, it would seem that there's, a, there's a, enough water to just dip it in and put it on my tongue in the torment. These are terrible, vivid imageries. And it can never, never be because it's all over, you see. It's all over. And there's external torment and there's the internal sense of despair and regret and horror and shame and what might have been. And it's in the presence, this is incredible, of the holy angels. And it's in the presence of the Lamb. I never thought of that. Do you realize that in a sense, no one will ever escape God's presence? On the one hand, his divine presence and the radiancy of his love, but on the other, the divine presence and the awfulness of his wrath. And the one who is there administering the wrath is the very one who could have been there, who would have been there administering grace and being a saviour and salvation. Now he's a judge. He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Acts chapter 17 it says it's constant. It's day and night. And it says it's eternal. That's the description of the situation in which they now find themselves under the judgment of God. Really, really, it's in hell here. It's a terrible thing. It's constant day and night. It's eternal. It's forever and ever. And the, the judgment under which the sinner finally finds themselves is never ending, never altering, never changing. It's like I'm ever dying but I'm never dead. You get the picture? Ever dying and never dead. The scripture says, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And it's no wonder the Lord Jesus said, don't you fear him that can destroy the body. You fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You know, the Isaiah prophecy of Isaiah ends with those 
ghastly words. I mean, it's a, when you think Isaiah 53 and the beauty of the Savior and the prophecy of Isaiah and the evangelist, I mean, he's the, he's the evangelical prophet, Isaiah. Evangelical prophet. You read chapter 1 and you know he's preaching to a people <coughs> who, are putri- who are full of their sins and offering mercy. Isaiah 53 and the beauty of Christ as the Savior who was wounded for our transgression and bruised again for our iniquities. He ends up and it says this. <clears throat> it shall come to pass that from one new moon... No, wait a minute. We'll go back to verse 22. Your seed and your name will remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. What a picture of blessing. What a lovely picture on the right-hand side of our book that we're opening. Then the last verse of the entire prophecy. The last verse of the entire prophecy. They shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. Their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched. There shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. You know the Jews, when they read Isaiah's prophecy, and they got to the last chapter, they would read verse 22. And then they really had trouble. Because you see, in that society and culture, to refuse to bury somebody is the lowest. It's the vilest. It's the most judgmental thing you could ever give to anybody to such a, such a, suffer such an indignity as to have your body just left rot to rot. And they would actually, this is true, they would actually go verse 22, then they'd go verse 24 and read about judgment, then they'd end the prophecy on the thing and shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. They could cope with that. And I can understand why in a way. But please, can you not see the evangelical prophet? Can you not see the gospel? Can you not see the alternative? And it is indeed the only alternative that God presents in his word. I want to just say briefly as we come to the close. The truth is, hell, the place of God's judgment, is really a terrible place. Do you get that? It's a dreadful, dreadful place. It's a place of torment. And it's a place, first of all, think about what's not there. All mercy is gone. It's not there. All grace is gone. It's just not there. All love is completely absent. Even common grace. You know, the sun rises on the just and on the unjust. The rain, it comes down. Regardless whether the person's good or evil, the rain comes down. But I tell you what, in, under God's judgment in that dreadful place, there'll never be the joy of a sunrise or the beauty of a sunset. Part of God's grace to the human race is to divide time up into 24 hours. Because you know you can have a terrible day but there's a new one tomorrow. And you can have a terrible time and then you wake one morning to the bright rising sun and you think, oh this is such a lift. Isn't it? It's not there. There's a total absence of all good. Total absence. And unfortunately and tragically and ghastly. In the society that lives there or lives on in there it's a society that's absolutely demonic. Hell is reserved for the devil and his angels. Do you realise that? And that's where they will be, cast in it says later on in the book along with the beast and the false prophet they're all there and every unrepentant unregenerate unrestrained sinner 
will be there in that society where only evil is known, only evil is practiced, unrestrained, where there will never be a kindness done, not a consideration given, not so much as a, a thought or a kind word. You know, you say to people about it sometimes and you get mocked, don't you? And they'll say, oh, well, I'll have plenty of friends in hell. You know, you won't have any friends in hell. Nobody will have a friend in hell because friendship is a positive thing. And there's absolutely nothing positive in that place of God's judgment. I want you to get that. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a place where there's absolutely no light. You see? Darkness, outer darkness it's described. <laughs> the absence of light. I, I always remember when I was a well, I was a teenager, actually, and I went to Warwick to preach in a little church up there. And I preached on the Passover night. And remember the darkness that was over the land of Egypt and the judgment night? They said it was a darkness that could be felt. That's a pretty eerie thing. And coming home, it was one of those nights when there was no moon, there was no stars. It was really, really dark. And it was on the old road to Warwick and down over the gap and down through the, the mountain there. And it was a lot steeper and a lot narrower. And I remember pulling up right at the top of the gap there just over in the side in the car and turning all the lights off and just sat there and just on your own, you know? And I thought of that verse that I'd been preaching on. There was a darkness that could be felt. And it's, that's just a little picture. And it was quite lonesome and powerful. And that's what we're dealing with when we're talking about the judgment of God. And if that's not enough, it's not just the things that are absent not just the society that's there, but added to that is the wrath of God that's there. The outpouring of judgment is fixed, unchanging attitude to sin. Anger, hate, indignation, punishment, a constancy of fury and judgment and penalty, an unaltering attitude that God has towards sin. Yes, a soul may think lightly of sin on earth. There'll not be a soul that thinks lightly of sin in hell. That's how strong it is. I wouldn't dare say these things, but the Bible says them. And we preach the word of God, finally in his indignation and his wrath, his righteous anger. A race of mankind, a creature who's rejected everything he provided. And after them deciding to reject it, he, they reject even an offer of mercy to solve it. There's nothing left. Nothing left but the wrath of God against sin. And then in verse 12, here is the patience of saints. A Christian living in that kind of world, this kind of world, persecuted sometimes, discouraged so often, sometimes feeling outnumbered most definitely, overwhelmed and we've read through here about martyred, martyred people suffering people people who've been killed for their faith what has it said here is the steadfastness, the endurance of the saints he moves on why? because he knows the other pages in the book the other side and he sees glory shining before him he sees victory in its fullness and in its climax he sees a Christ who is going to reign and to rule. And he's going to take us into his banqueting house and his banner over us is going to be 
endless love. And in the light of that, in the light of the fact that he knows that God will have the last say, that the king whom he has anointed will finally rule and reign and every knee shall bow, in the light of that, here is the steadfastness, the endurance, the patience of saints as they keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. And they read the book of Romans and they get to the last chapter, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Thank God there is a victory in Christ. Thank God for the crowning day that's coming by and by. Thank God that he will see to it that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it'll be to the glory of God the Father. But the alternative, it's real and it's terrible. May God deliver us all. And like the old publican of old, of old just stand there and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he went down to his house, justified, right with God. And he was looking on the left-hand side of that book and reading what? Blessing, salvation, glory and eternity. Thank God for that. We have a hope, fellow Christians, and we move on with our eye on the goal. Let's take encouragement this morning. Pray together. <clears throat> Father, we give thanks for these pages of Scripture. On the one hand, they real, reveal to us that which is dark and black, that which is terrible and frightening. Now, God, they spur us up as we... Some of us have family members that are not saved. We have friends that are not saved. We look at a world that's ripe for judgment and we realize the, the next great action will be a Christ who comes and he comes to judge the world. We think of a lovely time when he didn't come to judge the world. He didn't come to blame. It was to, he came to seek and he came to save that which was lost. Oh, we're blessed this morning that we've trusted him, that our eyes have been opened by divine grace. We long it for others. We long it for all. God who would not have any perish, but that all would come to repentance, to faith, to a knowledge of the truth. Oh, our God, how great thou art. How great is thy mercy and thy grace to us, poor sinners who deserve nothing but eternal damnation. But Lord, you've saved us by your grace and mercy's been shown us. And we bow in thanksgiving to the only wise God, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all as we leave this place and be kept until the next weekend, the Lord's Day, or until our Lord shall come. Amen.